As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Soccer Show and an episode where we ask what questions do our listeners have before answering questioners what our listeners have. My name is Ryan Bailey and it's a pared down TSS today, a gruesome twosome and a gross overrepresentation of Great Britain. Joining me today, a man who lives for Man City versus PSG in the group stages, it's Graham Ruthven. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I'd have, I have to say, I, I feel like a lot in soccer is a, is a gross overrepresentation of uh, Great Britain. So <laughs> we're just uh, continuing that, extrapolating that out. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for asking, Graham. Uh, I'm referencing there in my intro the Champions League draw, which is kind of wrapping up as we record. Some crackers, some groups turning out so far. Group A, Graham, uh, the three teams we've seen so far Man City, PSG, and RB Leipzig, that's a pretty heavy group, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a tough one for Jesse Marsh to go straight into. <laughs> yeah. Um, Man City v PSG is narrative overload, of course. And then even Group B, you know, Atletico Madrid, uh, Liverpool, Porto, and AC Milan are in that group. So that's that's a that's a another uh, doozy of, of of a group. Some of these groups have been fully drawn, as as Ryan was saying there. Were, were we're uh, talking mid-draw, uh, and it's a bit like watching a Zack Snyder cut of a group stage draw, uh, the way that they draw out. In fact, I think Zack Snyder would probably have found a way to cut cut it down a bit from what UEFA <laughs> do. So we're talking uh, while there's still some teams to be drawn out into the into the group. So um, yes, probably yeah. still some more interesting ones. I've just seen Club Bruges have gone into that group A, group of death. So City, PSG, Leipzig, and Club Bruges is uh, interesting. 
I um at the start of the group stage draw, Graham, I started the Zack Snyder cut running simultaneously just to see how they compared. Uh, I then started Apocalypse Now afterwards. I'm, I'm three quarters of the way through that as well. So uh, it's a long <laughs> draw. Why do we need to make the draw so long? It's just just pull the balls out and make it 10 minutes long. We don't need to know the best player in Europe halfway through the draw. It's madness. Yeah, I've also just lost track of who's in 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 what groups. So uh, I'm probably if I had I was to chat about chat about it now, I'd probably get things wrong. And uh, yeah, I've got the big teams in my mind, and then a lot of the pot three and four teams I've all kind of mixed into one, and I, I'll need to study it a bit closer. Yeah, I think the two groups to look out for are perhaps A and B, as we mentioned there, City, PSG, and Leipzig in A, uh, Atleti, Liverpool, Porto, and AC Milan in B. Um, the one group that's interesting, my eyebrow is raised because um, Manchester United appear to have uh, gone in as Man City in the group <laughs> stage draw here in Group F. Villarreal, Atalanta and Young Boys. There's some stumbling blocks there potentially, Graham, but it feels like, uh, you know how when the Carabao Cup draw was done on Wednesday night, it was like, yep, Man City are definitely getting a League One team at home. And yep, they definitely got a League One team at home. Feels like they've got that same energy, Man United here. Nice, nice draw for them. Yep, the the script has been flipped because I, I felt like Manchester United last season got a, quite a, a lot of difficult draws. Obviously, they were in the the group of death in, uh, in last season's Champions League, and 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 then got some difficult draws in the Europa League when they went in there as well. AC, AC Milan were a team they faced, and then City seemed to get easier draws, and City just seemed to, as you mentioned there. I don't know what it is about the cup competitions in England, but City just <laughs> always seem to get lower league teams. Um, and now City are, this is payback for Manchester United, and that City have been drawn in the group of death, and Man United have a little bit of a squish of a group, you would say. So as you, uh, maybe we shouldn't be, they shouldn't be too complacent. You know, Atalanta are, uh, in particular, a good team. Villarreal, of course, beat them in the Europa League final. So Unai Emery is uh, going to do Unai Emery things again at Old Trafford. But... Yeah, you would expect Manchester United probably to get out of that group, I would think. Um, Graham, I'm I'm still doing Scottish on Duolingo. Scoosh, did you say? A scoosh of a group? A scoosh of a group, yeah. Just just uh, an easy, an easy group. You know, a scoosh All of right. a job would be like an easy job. Something that you don't really have to try that hard at. All right, every day's a school day. Uh, scooshy group, Group G, Lille, Sevilla, Salzburg and Wolfsburg. It's got Europa League energy, that group, Graham. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to um, put my neck in the line and say that the winner's maybe not coming from that group. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I actually, as, as you say, Europa League energy, I, in recent seasons, have learned to love the Europa League, and I'm really loving the, the new Europa Conference League, which is a lot of, I think because there's quite a lot of Scottish teams in that, and it, it feels like a bit of a novelty. Maybe talk to me in two or three seasons and see how I feel about that competition. But So uh, along those lines, Group G, I'll, I'll probably watch all those games as well and, and find them really interesting. Oh, don't get me wrong, I'm going to watch them all. I just find it fascinating, the, the balance of power we see across these groups. Another one, Graham, we, we, we will get to listen to questions eventually, but Group D has come out as Inter Milan, Real Madrid, Shakhtar, and Sheriff Tiraspol. Sheriff Tiraspol for you there, Graham. Yep, uh, those are my those thoughts on Sheriff Tiraspol. Yeah, mine too, mine too. <laughs> Might mine need too. to do a bit of research there. Uh, not a team that I know particularly well. On the flip side, though, Shakhtar and Real Madrid are teams that know each other exceptionally well. And actually, Inter, Inter now I think about it, were Inter and Real Madrid, were they not in that group as well? Inter, Real Madrid like and were, Shakhtar. Right? So three of those teams were in the same group. Yeah, they were. Last so, season. Yeah. yeah, so that's, I mean, the odds of that have to be pretty long. 
Wow, uh, so three of the same group and a new sheriff in town, you could say, Graham. <laughs> the puns just rate themselves. Oh, they sure do. Let's see if there's more in this episode, shall we? Let's get to some listener questions, Graham. I say we start off with one with a bit of a Scottish tilt. A scoochy question for you. Did I say it right, scoochy? scoochy. Uh, I'd say scoosh. A scoosh of a question for you, Graham. Uh, this one's come from, coming from Cigar Asrira Magiri, who asks, who says, Hi, Scotland in the 70s and 80s seem to have had a lot of top-end players, but looking at their World Cup and Euro record of those times, it seems disappointing. Is it correct to say Scotland underperformed heavily in their era? And if so, what were the reasons? And Graham, when I think of players, uh, Scottish players of the seventies and eighties, the names I uh, I might I might not have the correct errors here, but I'm thinking Kenny Dalgleish, yep. Graham Souness, Gordon Strachan, Jim Layton, those kind of guys. Yep, that's the ones you definitely picked out this question, didn't you? Deliberately <laughs> to, to have a to have a dig at me in Scotland's underwhelming Maybe. performance uh, per- record at, at World Cups. I mean, yes, it is an entirely fair question. The the premise is is is, is valid. I would definitely say that Scotland heavily underperformed in that era. You look through 78, uh, sorry, 74, 78, 82, 86, Scotland made it to all of those World Cups. And not only that, we had we had really good players, world-class players. We had the players to be really competitive. You mentioned uh, Kenneth Aglish there, Graham Souness, and maybe the most infamous tale in Scottish football circles is the, the 1978 World Cup. Um, which was a, a genuinely brilliant team on paper. We This may seem ridiculous, but there was a lot of thought in Scotland at that time. I've, I, there's been a lot of documentaries on this subject. There was thought that Scotland could... I mean, I'm not sure how serious people thought that we could win the World Cup, despite the fact there was an anthem that was uh, will really shake them up when we win the World Cup on the road with Ali's army. Um, huh. I'm not sure how serious that thought was, but it's certainly valid to say we thought we could be competitive at the World Cup. And we went off to Argentina. Hamden gave this team, a, Hamden was packed, gave this team a, a send-off, uh, you know, 50,000 people packed inside Hamden, which tells you just the level of anticipation, the expectation there was. And we lost to Peru in the first game, and then we drew with Iran, and then we finally beat the Netherlands in our in our last group game. But it was it was too late late by then, and I think that final group game was actually a better reflection of where this team was. But we just have a a history at World Cups of losing. We we see we seem to do well against the bigger nations like the Netherlands, or the one that sticks in my mind is uh, my kind of one of my first memories of football is the, the France '98 World Cup, where Scotland mm. played Brazil in the first game. And even even though we lost two one, you know, very competitive against Brazil, and 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 we're drawing for a period that won all until an own goal. But then we we uh, I think it was Morocco we lost in that tournament too to knock us out, and we've lost to Peru and drawn with Iran and lost to Costa Rica, and and there's just a history of. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but we do tend to, when we have the players, because more recently we just haven't had the players to be at that level. But when we have, we we don't live up to expectation. Graham. This is going to sound like trolling, but I don't mean it this way. Sagar's <laughs> um, question is about the 70s and 80s and underperforming heavily in that era. Mm-hmm. I will twist that and say, when have, and, and once again, not trolling, when have Scotland not underperformed? Because that, to, to Cliff notes what you just said there, you know, there was Euro 96, France 98, getting into major tournaments, and then nothing until Euro 2020. Not made the last five World Cups, never gone past the group stage of the World Cup, only ever qualified for three European Cups and never gone past the group stages. And I know Scotland is small. Um, you know, what was it about five million population? Yeah, five or so. to six million, yeah. Five to six million. 
that's more than Croatia. That's about the same as Denmark. Uh, Iceland got like three, four hundred thousand population, and they've gone further in a major tournament. And once again, not trolling Graham, but for a soccer mad country as Scotland is, has there been a period where they have never not underperformed? Too many double negatives, not, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, not really. I mean, the periods where we haven't, <laughs> we haven't underperformed have been the last twenty years when we ha- we just haven't had the players. So, and that's not to say that we, you know, we've we, we've been bad in that period. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I took the question to mean looking at sort of the players that we had. So, mm. you know, all the players that you mentioned, the, the Daglishes, even going slightly further back, the Dennis Laws. I mean, Dennis Law won a Ballon d'Or, the only Scottish player to win a Ballon d'Or. So we, we back then we did have the players you're looking at, you're looking at that team and you think we should be competitive in the in the knockout round so i i think it's more based on the, the just reading into the question i think it's more based on like the quality of the players rather than looking at our records and then looking at the 70s and 80s and we didn't live up to that record you're right yeah. we've we've never made it past the group stage of a major tournament which for for a country you know taking it out of the taking the size of the country out of it to look at how many major tournaments we have been at and we've never made it past the group stage it's quite quite incredible um and it's something we definitely need to rectify and i think that's what there was so much hope about the euros because i think there was an opportunity there in hindsight we definitely again underperformed i think we were are better on paper than we are actually on the pitch so that's something that we as the day that scotland makes out of a group stage of a major tournament will be a massive achievement for scottish football but it should have come 40 50 years ago <laughs> but I want to get to the bottom of the why, though, Graham. Do you think it's it's probably not a cultural thing, but is it like a grassroots thing? You know how is there not enough investment in you know grassroots soccer and, and pitches in in neighbourhoods and that kind of thing? Because you hear about how Iceland sort of accelerated their yeah. program and they made sure there were indoor um, uh, fields so they could play all year long, and they really went for it. Is there a sense that there's been a lack of investment in Scottish soccer? Yeah, so the first thing to say is that this week's, uh, I think it's this week's, it might be next week, but uh, Taylor and I recorded a Soccer 101 just yesterday on, on Scottish soccer and a lot of this this stuff is covered. So I'll try and give you a kind of quite a concise answer because we ended up talking about it for, I think, over an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's quite a long one. But yes, to, the short story is absolutely, we, Scotland used to have this street soccer culture, which came from working class communities and Scotland in the in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s was 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 quite poverty ridden particularly in, in Glasgow and Ayrshire and Lanarkshire which is where a lot of these these players came from our best players and um, once society got lifted up and once living standards got better and the, the middle class expanded and all that which are obviously fantastic things the footballing downside which in the grand scheme of things is a small downside but nonetheless the footballing downside was that culture wasn't replaced with anything and obviously in other countries around europe this similar things happened but they replaced that street soccer culture with something they invested in facilities countries like the netherlands invested in coaching a lot mm. in, the, in, in the 80s and the 90s and they still do that to this day and we never really did that until to be honest 2010 was when that's how late we, we started to not just rely on our history as a nation as a football nation to produce these players we we kind of ripped up the the grass, grassroots level structure and i think you're starting to see some progress in players like billy gilmore and a young guy at rangers called um, nathan patterson and players like tierney and robertson and so on these these people are these players are po- uh, products of this new system and the, the hope is that it's not just gonna be a flash in the pan and that we've kind of set ourselves up for the next few decades 
but yeah, it, it, we we for a long time it was almost complacency in that we thought because we were we we're one of the forefathers of, of football, which Scotland is, and we had success in producing players for a long time in the sixties, seventies, eighties, that that would continue forever regardless of circumstances, and it didn't, and it took us a long time to cotton on to that. So. I've got a solution suggestion for you, Graham. You know how Germany had the 10-year plan leading up to the 2014 World Cup victory? I suggest Scotland has the 100-year plan, just to be realistic. So 21-21, maybe get out of the group stage of a major tournament. That could be the goal. What do you think? I mean, there's there's baby steps we can take here. Maybe year one, everybody stops eating deep fried pizzas with thick cut fries underneath. No, no, I'm not in favour of that one. No, no, we're, we're not having that in the plan. In fact, quite the opposite, that, that, that we should be eating more. That's the thing that's stopping us from uh, being a successful football nation. Not enough deep fried pizza. <sighs> okay, all right. <laughs> let's, uh, let's park that one then, Graham, and we'll, we'll ponder some more. And I do recommend, uh, listener, you check out that Soccer 101 episode. Come into the feed near you soon, if not already. Another question, Graham, from Jackie Choi. Hello, Jackie. Uh, the question is, and I'm censoring this question. You're going to know the word I'm censoring because it's a censorship that we've used before on this podcast, Graham. Is poophousery strategic? Poophousery. Can it be taught? Can it elevate an otherwise significantly less skilled team to success at scale? I.e., says Jackie, if you put together a team of poop houses, correct use of the terminology, (laughs) thank you, uh, Jackie, uh, if you put together a team of poop houses for a tournament like the World Cup, would their poop housing lead them to more success than they would otherwise have based on skill alone and just to be clear on the meaning of poop house uh, which is a word that typically begins with s but we have censored as i say the meaning there which i take graham which you might agree with is underhand conduct uh gamesmanship in soccer with the intention of gaining a deliberate but subtle advantage and it can be anything like a bit of subtle violence simulation or just general sneakiness would you agree with that um t- uh, definition yeah, I mean, I would have, I would have gone with a shorter definition of just Sergio Ramos. Sergio Ramos. Uh, <laughs> but yes, that is absolutely spot on. Yeah. So I, I would argue uh, to to Jackie's question. Yes, uh, poop housery is very strategic, and it can be crucial to success. And if we, if we're going to uh, disparage teams who use poop housery as being, you know, uh, on a lower level, that's simply not the case. Because I think even the most technically proficient teams use poop housery to a great extent. Uh, look at every Pep Guardiola team, for example. They've got those niggly, flou- niggly deliberate fouls to break up play. There's always that you know, defensive midfielder to do that. We've got your Fernandinho character, your Sergio Busquets character, who basically is poop house 101 in the middle of the field. And then you look at someone like Jose Mourinho, who, you know, he lives for time wasting and, and little, little sneaky uh, things like that, doesn't he? And praising ball boys for being fast or too slow or depending on which team they're helping or hindering or or Mourinho literally having a medical professional fired for coming on the field and breaking up play you know that kind of attempts that was a a poop housery attempt that was foiled by Eva Quinero um, much to Mourinho chagrin in that instance but we have top level teams who very much use poop housery and even at the lower levels, I say it's used as well. Uh, the example I'd used last week, I went to see Wimbledon play Gillingham. Wimbledon mentioned, ding, ding, ding. Um, <laughs> Gillingham mentioned, uh, managed by a, a rather unpleasant man called Steve Evans. Sue me, don't care. You're very unpleasant, Steve. Um, but Gillingham, decent passing team. 
But their technique of shutting down uh, attacks coming into their own defensive third was pretty deliberate suicide tackles one to two yards outside the box. They must have done it seven times during this game I watched and they only got one red card for it. So there's a lot of poop houseery going on in soccer, Graham. Would you agree with me that it is strategic and it is pretty important? And ooh, part of Jackie's question was, can it be taught? And I think it's maybe encouraged, if not taught. Yeah, I mean, you look at Diego Simeone's Atletico Madrid, I think that's the quite clear case study that it, it can be taught. Players go to Atletico Madrid who maybe aren't uh, natural poop houses and they, they, <laughs> they become poop houses for Atletico Madrid. So yeah, I think, it, you know, I, I don't know, maybe teaching is the wrong word, but the, you can create an environment where that is encouraged or it's, it's acceptable. I actually have, I mean, obviously it's the most infuriating thing in the world if it happens against your team, um, but I have a level of respect for it. I, I think it's, I think it's, one of my definitions of it is just looking for a, an advantage in any way that you can. And I, I think it was, right. I think it was Jose Mourinho who was one of my my favourite examples of poop housery when when he was manager in the, in the Premier League and when Stoke went in the Premier League and obviously Stoke were were famous or maybe infamous is the right term for their their long Rory Delap throws into the into the penalty box at that time and so when Stoke would come to play it must have been Chelsea when Stoke would come to to Stamford Bridge Jose Mourinho would make sure that all the towels around the pitch that that Stoke would often have situated the ball boys basically were to remove those towels before the match happened before the match kicked off which for anyone who didn't know Rory Delap would kind of um he would he would dry the ball essentially and in the towel so it would give him extra grip to throw it into the box yeah and so that that to me is just a perfect example of um poop housery where that maybe most managers or most players or, or fans maybe wouldn't think of that but a true poop house will think of that and there is a there is an advantage to to be gained from that you know Delap wasn't able to throw th- uh, the ball as, as far without those towels so I think that's a good example and I have a, I have a respect for people who who think like that who are looking to gain an advantage without breaking the rules wherever they can yeah it takes a certain level of cojones to pull that off I would say Graham and that's sort of part of the question that Jackie asks um if a team of poop houses would go further at a tournament uh, an international tournament than one that was based on skill alone should we look at England versus Italy in the Euro 2020 <laughs> final for an example of how, yes, they can go further with poop housery? I'm looking at you, um, every Italian player. <laughs> yeah, they're down in my notes as well. Um, yeah, I think especially in a knockout format as well, where it's all about individual game plans, there's just something that seems to work better in that way. And, and obviously Italy, when they were when they were leading games or, or needing to see out games, that's where it really came to the fore and... and yeah, absolutely right. And Italy are a good example. Roberto Mancini's Italy are a good example of how it, it's not. We maybe think of poophousery and and associate it with agricultural rugged teams, but that mm. that wasn't Italy at, no. at, at the Euros. You know, a very well coached, technically able side who like to play with the ball at their feet. Yes, they play in the counter attack a lot, but they're still you know they're still very good with the ball at their feet, and that was a key part of their game. And as you mentioned, Pep Guardiola uses that a lot Fernandinho that's basically his role in the yep. Manchester City team is, is to foul opposition uh, teams when they come bursting forward so yeah it's, it's used by a number of managers in a number of different ways um, and I do think it can I mean part of the question is um, you know if you put together a, a team 
I don't know if it's a team full of poop houses or just a team with with a with a number of them. I still think you need a level of if you only had poop. I mean, it would be a great social experiment if we got uh, you know Sergio Ramos and Busquets and Fernandinho and put them all in the one team and see how see how they see how they did. But I, my my hunch says that you still need to have that that technical ability to make it work. Yeah, I think ultimately, Graham, if you're a good team, you want opponents to fear you. You want opponents not to want to play you. And what Poop Houseu does, it adds that extra level on top of the skill that makes you difficult to play. I think that's what really gives you the advantage there. And now you've got me thinking about the exercise if, if you had a Poop House 11. Uh, you know, Ramos and Pepe in the back, Luis Suarez up top, Scott Brown in the middle, surely. Uh, Diego Costa's like, probably in there. Yeah, I feel like Scott Brown's maybe... Uh... Maybe out of place in that eleven, he might be the the weak link. It <laughs> well, depends what his role of... is, Graham. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> but I, I I imagine if you put eleven poop houses in the same team, like nothing would get done. Like they wouldn't touch the ball, probably, yeah. unless they their hands. That well. <laughs> All right, Jackie. Thank you very much for that question. We're going to be back with more after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we have returned with your listener questions. I'll tell you who else has returned. Michael Hastings Black with another question. He asks, he says, we hear a lot of criticism about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. To flip it positive, what is Ole really good at? I think there's an obvious answer here, Graham. He's good at finishing, coming on in the last 15 minutes and getting the win, <laughs> scoring European Cup final, you know, epic goals. That's, there's more than that though, right? Yeah, accents. He's got the best accent in uh, in the Premier League. That kind of Scandinavian slash Mancunian accent, oh, which is oh yes, is both very peculiar and jar- jarring, but also very satisfying to listen to. It's a, I love it's a it. strange strange mix. Uh, there was a clip going around pertaining uh, relating to Cristiano Ronaldo being linked with Manchester City today. Yes, and it, so. was, it was Solskjaer <laughs> saying. If you do, if you play for Man United, you don't play for City. And I was like, "Aren't you from Norway? What is going? What's coming out of your mouth?" Uh, the best one was um, Peter Schmeichel as well, with his Danish, with the Mancunian accent on top as well. It's delightful, absolutely delightful. Yeah. I love that when that happens. There's just something about North uh, Europeans that seem to absorb English accents, but yet somehow it doesn't happen with French people. Arsene Wenger lived in London for what twenty years. And he's right to the day he retired. He sounded like that he'd just moved from Paris. That's true. Maybe it was an act. Maybe it was part <laughs> of his uh, his charm. Yeah, like a Joey Barton. <laughs> but he's actually French, which would be peculiar. That'd be a strange, oh, yeah. a strange flex. Well, Joey Barton is the great thinker of our time. I wouldn't compare him to Arsene Wenger. He's, he's streets ahead of Arsene Wenger, oh, yeah. as we all sure. know, Graham, of course. Um, but with, with the question of Solskjaer, if we look at what he's 
maybe to look at what he gets criticised for, the lot mm-hmm. of criticism that he gets. It's for Manchester United's inconsistency, as we've seen week one, week two in the Premier League. Yep. Uh, Set-piece defending, not so hot with Manchester United. Uh, I'd say probably one of the principal concerns is the team just can't break down a defensive team, which we saw against uh, Southampton in week two as well. I'd argue also questionable using players in their best position and also best players where you see like what Mason Greenwood how he was used certainly at the start against Southampton and uh old Donny van der Beek remember him yeah. doesn't yeah yeah I mean those are all those are all valid criticisms he's he's not a, a perfect manager by by any stretch one of the things I, I would praise him for is I do think Solskjaer is he's quite good at learning i think is one thing one thing i'd say about him i think he's a better manager than he than he was when he first arrived at manchester united i also mm-hmm. think he knows his own shortcomings so you mentioned set pieces there which is entirely a valid criticism it's been a massive um, flaw of manchester united's under Solskjaer. but this summer he brought in a set pieces coach i think i might have this wrong i think it's a man called eric ramsey um, who has been brought in to be a set pieces coach for manchester united i like that about Solskjaer. i like that he will delegate uh, delegate things to other people if that's maybe not his strength I do think another thing he's good at is is kind of man management so I look at right. the number of individuals who have improved under Solskjaer Luke Shaw is the prime example Luke Shaw who's now arguably the best left back in Europe certainly in the Premier League at the moment I think Rashford even though Rashford's form is still quite inconsistent I think you look at how he was under Mourinho and there's a definite improvement there another one who fits that mold again still inconsistent but better is Anthony Martial Uh, Scott McTominay despite the fact that (laughs) Mourinho brought him through and created his own award for McTominay uh, what (laughs) manager's player of the year I think which wasn't an award before Mourinho gave that to McTominay Um, he has been better under Solskjaer Fred was Mourinho's Van de Beek who was completely forgotten about. And look, I'm not the biggest fan of Fred, but he contributes in some games. Lindelof, is, I think, has been better under Solskjaer. And then Pogba this season. And, and that's maybe the best example of Solskjaer's man management skill is the situation, the current situation with Paul Pogba, where he is out of contract at the end of the season. There is a lot of talk about his future at the moment. But Pogba seems to be pretty focused on playing for Manchester United this season. He's argu- this is arguably his, his best ever start. In fact, in fact, not arguably, it is his best ever start to a season for United. And there's all this stuff happening around him. And you contrast that with how Mourinho treated Pogba and, and how that, that he just seemed to aggravate the whole situation. And, and I do think that is one of the, the, the better things about Solskjaer's management. Yeah, definitely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there with the with the the man management is what he's renowned for, isn't it? Being being a people person and being a really good communicator, where some of the other uh, managers between Sir Alex Ferguson and him maybe not so much, not so hot in that regard. I think it's one of the ways that Frank Lampard was praised as well, wasn't it? Being a real good man manager, being a person, having one on one meetings, uh, and really getting through to the players because I suppose he wasn't wasn't long isn't long retired uh, when you when you compare it to some of the older managers out there. And there's this there's this perception that Solskjaer does really well communicating with his players on a one to one basis, and he he really gets through to them. There's a quote I got from here. Solskjaer said, "They want to know the players what is expected of them, but it's not just me telling them what to do. It's about asking. What are your strengths? What do you feel? What can you give to the team?" So he's got a real good understanding of how people work, basically. So I think that's a really a really good point uh, to, to emphasize there, Graham. And I think there's there's two other key traits I would p- 
pink uh, point out uh, of what he's been good at. And you look at how he's he's been. What is the the fourth manager after Fergie? Is isn't it? It's the fourth manager in in yeah, Moyes five, Van Hal, Marine. Yep, fourth. Yeah, in five or six years or whatever it's been, inherited by all accounts a pretty toxic atmosphere at the club. Not not great dressing room atmosphere. And he, the culture he's brought in is one of you know positivity and also discipline. He seems to have brought back discipline is something he's also praised for as well. And the one other thing I'd mention, Graham, is is perhaps maybe maybe we can debate this, but tactical flexibility, mm-hmm. uh, reacting to a situation a bit certainly a bit better than maybe Mourinho and Van Gaal, who much more renowned for their rigidity uh, in terms of their in terms of their tactics. And one, one really, I should probably add one really important thing is, you know, Manchester United is a, is a, is a team who, uh, whose, whose philosophy is attacking. Attack, attack, attack is what Manchester yeah. United fans at Old Trafford have sung or shouted for decades. And he's brought back a more, entertain, a more entertaining style of play. I'm not saying the most entertaining style of play, certainly not last week, but um, less risk-averse, more risk-averse, sorry. Willingness to take risks, I'd say, and, yeah. and be a bit more entertaining certainly than several of his predecessors so i think there's a lot of positive traits to to look out for it's not perfect but there's there's certainly a lot there yeah absolutely and that 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 thing about um attack 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 manchester United, that's very much in their dna as a club and Mourinho mm. was a complete departure from that and so they needed someone like Solskjaer to come back and yeah sure he might he might not have all the answers tactically but you look at Manchester United as a counter-attacking side, as a counter-attacking outfit, as an attacking outfit. They're 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 one of the best in the Premier League. I think that's that's pretty clear. And and that that does take some tactical that some some tactical uh, learning, some tactical education to these players. And and yeah, I think I think there's also been a few games where he's he's proved himself as a tactician in one-off matches. So maybe the best example of this was a PSG the PSG away game last season when Solskjaer went to a, a back three with wing-backs, which isn't really something he does very often, but he did that to thwart PSG in those, right. those wide forward areas where they're so so dangerous and they worked. Uh, sorry, it worked and they won they won 2-1 and Solskjaer also has an exceptional record. I think the best record of any manager I think is 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 the is the the fact there the best record of any manager against Pep Guardiola, um, which is just another. I think that's another sign he does know how to construct a tactical game plan for a single match, particularly especially against high caliber opponents. Yeah, it's it's maybe the Southamptons who sit back and defend deep and 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 maybe play a low defensive block. That's that's maybe the. That's maybe where the flaws come from. I don't know if you, I don't know if you, you read this piece, but there's a there's a good article by when I was doing my research for this from um, by by Laurie Whitwell for the Athletic on what Solskjaer's like behind the scenes and just the differences between him and Mourinho. He, for instance, will buy birthday presents for members of the staff. He watches not just all the youth teams, but he also watches the women's team a lot as well. And it's just about creating that that club mentality. And and there's there's a good tale of. Solskjaer will invite, as most managers will do, they'll invite young players into the the first team. Even if they're not getting games, they'll invite them into first team training, and he'll know their names and he'll know their their uh, their their qualities as players. Whereas Mourinho just called them all kid. <laughs> he didn't know any of their names, so uh, that that's a, that's a big difference. And I think that sort of thing's important. It just creates that idea of of, of everyone being in it together, no matter if yeah. you're Bruno Fernandez. Or you're the receptionist welcoming people in the morning. People in the morning, you are important to the club. 
Yeah, totally agree with that. And that, that kind of thing is really important at an organization. And I point to, um, I've been quite close to Charlotte FC, the technical director there. When he comes into the office every day, he comes around and high fives every single person. I'm talking like all the ticketing staff, non-technical staff, like everybody knows everybody's name and it's a big staff. But it, it, that sort of thing is the sort of thing that's noticed. And I think that's really important as well. And that's, that, that builds on like being a good communicator and being a good people person. I will ask you, Graham, I've not read the athletic piece, but buying birthday presents for all the staff and players. Did you say players as well? Um... I mean, if he's buying, if he's buying birthday presents for kind of staff members, I, I guess maybe players are getting birthday presents as well. I don't know. I, I didn't think. I don't think I mentioned whether whether players got birthday presents. But if if they don't, it's just as well. Yaya Toure doesn't play for Manchester United. <laughs> I'm I'm just thinking, what on earth can you buy a Premier League player who can literally afford anything? What um, what have they not got? I, I, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Is it Nando's gift vouchers? I don't know. Yeah, just Nando's. That's got to be yeah. Or or um, what's the Chinese restaurant in Manchester called that Van Hal used to go to? Wings. Oh, wings. Is it wings? Yeah. Wings. Wings vouchers. <laughs> <laughs> very good indeed. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Michael, for that question about Oligon Solskjaer. I hope we got to that one for you. We got another one coming at you from Pete Johnson here. I like this question, Graham. Is retiring a jersey a thing in soccer? Part two of question, should Barcelona retire the number 10 jersey? Uh, quick answer to this one, Pete. Yes, retiring a jersey is a very real thing. There are literally hundreds of examples of it. Uh, I think the most the, the one, the most prevalent one that comes to mind for me, Graham, is Maradona's jersey with Napoli, which mm-hmm. was retired after, obviously, his legendary stint there, bringing them the uh, Serie A title. And if you've seen the Maradona, Maradona HBO documentary, you'll know all about his journey there and his legendary status. They also recently renamed the stadium after him, after his passing. So the Stadio San Paolo is now the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona. Apparently, I wasn't aware of this, Graham, but um, Argentina retired number 10 as well. But FIFA got a bit upset about it and having squad numbers. And then a little chap called Leo Messi took that number instead. (laughs) And he's not bad. He's He's all right. Yeah. And he's he is very much regarded by Maradona as his successor as well. So I think he was he was okay with that. Yeah. But I've got some other high profile examples if you'll care to hear them. Uh, the other one that sort of strikes me is Paolo Maldini, uh, number three at AC Milan. Uh, you know his his dad Cesare, of course, was captain of Milan before him. And I understand they will only reinstate the number three shirt when one of his well, this is what I saw written down when one of his sons it, makes the first team. And this is interesting, Graham, because one of his sons has made the first team last season. Yeah. Daniel Maldini is an attacking forward for, for uh, Milan. But he's wearing 27. He's not wearing number three, maybe because of his position. Uh, Christian Maldini, his other son, plays in Serie C, so uh, he did not make the cut for the Rossoneri. But that's interesting how they... Maybe Paolo Maldini needs to have a grandchild and they keep, they keep the dynasty going for four <laughs> generations. Uh, that, <laughs> that way they'll, they'll reinstate that number three shirt. And there's another one uh, at Milan as well, Franco Baresi, who's number six, uh, who was a mentor of Maldini, in fact, came before Maldini. Uh, his shirt number is retired at Milan too. And while we're in the San Siro, I'll give you one more. Javier Zanetti, yeah. uh, the entire number four, who spent, it says 19 years at San Siro. I think it was more like 59 years from what I can remember. <laughs> and he looked exactly the same every single year because he's a gloriously handsome man with brilliant hair. Um, yeah, Do, have, you, have you got any more examples, Graham? I can, I can keep going if you want. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there is there is a, a lot of them. So Johan Cruyff, number fourteen. Uh, I, uh, uh, Graham, I need to correct you there. If you listen to the Simon Cooper interview on the TSS oh. feed this week, no, I, I won't correct you. I'll, I'll just tell you how Simon Cooper pronounced it. He said Johan Krauf, which oh, I've wow, never okay. heard before. I, I'm, I'm I'm sticking with Cruyff myself, but just uh, do carry on. See, this is this is like the Bruno Fernandes uh, yeah. situation where I've been saying the wrong thing for too long now to <laughs> to correct myself if you tell me initially when i first learn a player's name i will say that and i'll i'll commit that to memory but yeah i'll, I'll be honest i've been saying you and cruyff for you know 20 years now stick so. with it you're fine <laughs> yeah i'm probably gonna stick with that yeah so you and cruyff uh, ajax following the the kind of napoli model with the stadium also being uh named after him uh, mm-hmm. recently after after his death and and, and there is uh, when i was doing my research on on this and looking at players there did seem to be a clear split in the kind of players who who do have a shirt um a jersey number retired for them so you have kind of club greats you've mentioned a number of them maradona you know cruyff zanetti inter and then you also have shirt numbers who are who are retired in in, in tribute to players who have who have died in tragic circumstances so one that stands out mark vivian foe number yeah. 23 at manchester city you have uh, daniel yarke at, at, at espanol number mm-hmm. 21 and they also um on the 21st minute they 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 still clap at the rcde stadium in in, in barcelona so that they it's that seems to be a something that that happens quite a lot and i think that's quite fitting to be honest that's quite quite a fitting tribute i do like that one that yes. one that maybe I don't get so much. Um, Jude Bellingham <laughs> mm. had number twenty-two retired at Birmingham City. Uh, Jude Bellingham, of course, is the the teenage Borussia Dortmund and England midfielder. He he played just forty-one games for uh, for Birmingham City. So it's that that that's a that's a little bit of a strange one. I have to say that that, that he had uh, that he had the shirt number retired, but I guess whatever floats your boat. Yeah, they <laughs> indeed they have stuck with it as well. Their, their logic, Graham. Uh, he was he was seventeen when he left uh, when he left Birmingham. He didn't get them promoted to the Premier League or anything like that. Played for them for, for just a season, as you say. But he was with them since the under eight sides. And their logic was that it would encourage other youth players to come through and say, one day we'll retire your shirt when you're. 17 if right. you uh, stick with this team so yeah it, it is slightly baffling uh, i've got a couple more interesting ones for you raul whose number seven was not retired at real madrid it was retired at schalke or at least they said they would uh they stuck they they put it out there they were going to retire raul's shirt after one year they gave it to max meyer so they didn't stick with that at all which is a, <laughs> which is a curious one Another, they were just it, they, they, they just didn't think raul was going to watch any more of their games that's what that was <laughs> they just told him that and there's like yeah he's never going to watch us again particularly if we're in the uh this german second division he's not watching he, us again he'll he never, never did <laughs> the other the other interesting one there's a uh, the greek side ael uh, after Kobe Bryant passed, Graham, they retired number twenty-four. Oh, oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Right. That, so not I mean, even a player or even the same sport. Is, is there is there any link there, or just an owner who was a massive Kobe fan, or not that I could see? I mean, the Greeks do like basketball, but it, it, yeah. and it's a nice tribute, of course. But it does it, there's there's an incongruence there, I suppose you could say, Graham. Um, yeah. 
some other interesting ones. Oh, um, Rogerio Tenny, the Sao Paulo goalkeeper. You know, the one who scores like a billion goals and was their oh, free yeah. kick expert. Number sure. one is retired at Sao Paulo, which is a tricky, you know, no goalkeepers being uh, number one anymore is, is so pretty cool. I saw that one as well. And this might have just been a typo, admittedly. But did Senny not wear 0-1? And I think maybe they've retired 0-1. I saw that in a, in a list. So does that mean someone can still wear 1? Oh, that's that's a cop out if that's true. I'm going to have to look into that one. <laughs> uh, I also found an MLS one. Real Salt Lake have retired Jason Christie's number nine as well, which is interesting. Yep. Um, but we should answer the second part of the question. Should Barcelona retire the number 10 jersey? I put it to you, Graham. Yes, they should. Uh, not just because of they've had happened to have probably the greatest player of all time wear it, but they've had some of the other greatest players of all time wear number 10. Lest we forget, Maradona wore number 10 at Barcelona. Uh, Risto Stoichkov wore number 10 at Barcelona. Rivaldo, Ronaldinho. And interestingly, I found this out in my research, Pep Guardiola wore number 10 as a defensive midfielder for a little while. Who'd have thunk it? But I would say, um, not, not, not just because of the history of the 10 there, but Messi having worn it. If you look at the other players who who uh who have who've been retired at other clubs uh if you can retire Maldini's shirt at Milan I feel like it's completely appropriate to do the same thing at Barcelona what say you can I come at this from the other side of things so I I actually think they shouldn't they shouldn't retire it because I think you've you've mentioned the number of players that have like the iconic players that have that have worn the the number 10 shirt for Barcelona and I I think that just proves to me that there will be more. There will be more iconic players who wear number 10. And that just adds to the, the aura of that shirt. So another one I'm thinking of is number seven at Manchester United. There's just, there's just certain shirts and shirt numbers that have a, have a gravity, have a pull towards great players. And I, I just like the idea of that being passed down to another player. Now, what I would say is that they should retire it for a while, just now. <laughs> um, I think the pressure to fill that shirt could have the potential to to crush a young player. I think mm. there's been a lot of talk of Ansu Fati maybe getting that shirt because he is very much seen as the the natural heir to to Messi at Barcelona, and that might that might turn out to be true. I think Ansu Fati, I watched him a lot for Barcelona, and um, I think he's the best teenager in, in world football. And the fact he's been injured has robbed us of him for a little while. I think he could genuinely be a Messi successor. But don't give him that number shirt, that number ten shirt just now. Don't don't put that pressure on on him. Wait until he is a genuine superstar and he is carrying that team, and then maybe pass that number ten shirt on to him. So I I I, w- I would like to see that that shirt kept around. I think maybe when it's no disrespect to kind of smaller clubs, but when it when it's smaller clubs who maybe they know there's not going to be another player like them again. So even you know Ajax, who are a massive club, who have a great history and so on they're they're maybe not going to have another Cruyff such as his mm. influence and I just think Barcelona are such a size and stature that they're going to have like more legendary players in the decades to come so that's why I would keep it around also with all respect to Cruyff slash Cruyff um it's easier <laughs> to retire a number outside of 1 to 11 as yeah well, isn't it? he's number 14 yeah. so it's not quite <laughs> as desirable uh, although maybe Thierry Henry would think otherwise Oh, very true, very true. No disrespect to Jude Bellingham and his 22, which will forever live on in infamy at Birmingham City. Maybe, I think Barcelona don't have a 10 right now, so maybe they're just pulling the Schalke technique and when he's looking the other way, they'll uh, <laughs> they'll give it to Max Meyer. 
That seems yeah. to be the way to do things. Uh, Graham, thank you very much for your answers there. Thank you, Pete, for the question. We're going to be right back after these short messages with some more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, part three, listener questions. Ryan and Graham with you. Demetrius Osborne has a question for us, Graham. Did Liverpool trick everyone into thinking Coutinho was good or was he actually good? Cheeky. And if he was good, is he still? I'm going to start off this uh, on a slight tangent. Uh, Philippe Coutinho is the one name in soccer I can never spell correctly. Uh, I can never spell the first name correctly. Two, one L, two P's, right? Yep, Philippe. that's correct, yep. And Philip Lahm is the other one. I can never get that one in the L's and the P's. Just, just putting it out there, I find that very difficult to spell. Um, <laughs> I would say that Philippe, Philippe Coutinho, however he's spelled, let's call him Philly Coots for now, much shorter and easier. <laughs> I'd say he's a very good player who's just uh, been... If we're going to cliff notes it, he's been down on his luck, shall we say. We know he's a, we saw what he was about at Liverpool. Great passer, you know, through ball second to none. Really hard to get the ball off of him. Finishing, brilliant. Long shots, fantastic. He made a World Cup dream team in 2018. He's got quite, he's got, um, you know, quite a lot of titles, quite a lot of silverware in his, in his back catalogue, even if he was squad member for some of them, Graham. But what's let him down, I think, is uh, the the weight of the price tag maybe plays a part on it. Uh, you know, a pretty disastrous move to Barcelona. They paid 120 million euros for him, plus 40 million euros with add-ons. Uh, by the way, 20 million of those add-ons are for 100 plus appearances. He's at 90 appearances with Barcelona, Graham. Oh, no. So 10 more appearances <laughs> with Barca will cost them 20 million euros. So you can bet your bottom dollar they're going to give him 11 more performances and pay 20 million euros because that's how they handle yeah. their finances <laughs> at Barcelona. Um, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't think Barcelona have that money, so it might just be the case that they send you know, Samuel Umtiti to Liverpool uh, instead of 20 million or something <laughs> like that. Just send them a few players. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because obviously they they can't really afford to. I don't I don't even know if he's registered right now because he's he's beat, he was out for six months with a was it a thigh injury he had ground keeping him out. Um, and he was even ruled out when he was when he signed for Barca when he he literally during his medical they picked up something that put him out for a month. <laughs> so that was kind of the the harsh luck he's had there. After one what was it eight about eighteen months he played with Barca before he he had his loan to Bayern Munich as well mm. and. We could argue that he, he had misfortune there with injuries. He certainly has had misfortune with injuries. Maybe in the way that Ernesto Valverde used him initially as well. If memory serves, he did a 4-4-2, which may not be uh, Coutinho's preferred uh, formation. What are your thoughts on this one, Graham? I'm going to say he is a good player who's just had bad circumstances. Yeah, 
I think I think Coutinho was and can be a brilliant player. I think there's been a lot of revisionism around Coutinho. I mean, when he moved to Barcelona, I know the fee was slightly inflated, but there, there was a reason that, that Barcelona wanted him. There was a reason that they saw him as the, the Neymar replacement, mm. really. I mean, that's where that money came from. They bought... Usman Dembele in a, in a bit of a, a panic move in that same window that, that Neymar left. But really, Coutinho was the player that they thought was going to be the Neymar replacement. So he was one of the, the best players in the Premier League. For the first phase of, of Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool rebuild, Coutinho was their best their best player. Um, and I think he has been a victim of circumstance. You, you're right to mention the, the formation and the shape that, that Ernesto Valverde used. He... You know, I, I always think Coutinho's best position is when you start him in the centre in kind of the number 10 position, but you allow him to drift out to the left. Mm. That's where you get the best out of Coutinho. And in, in a 4-4-2 or a 4-3-3 shape, which is what Barcelona played right up until Coman arrived at the club, that, there, that, that there's not really that, that position doesn't really exist. So you end up either with Coutinho in central midfield and they try them as the Iniesta replacement, which... Just, just doesn't work really. Coutinho needs freedom, and I think in that in that Iniesta position, he, he, the rigidity of that just didn't suit him at all. Or they played him out in on, in the actual Neymar role on, on the left wing, and that that wasn't a good fit for him either. He's he's mm-hmm. not really a winger. So they signed a player because of his ability, which he definitely has a lot of, obviously, and and but didn't really think about how they were going to fit him into their into their team and. There's definitely a player there. Obviously, he's very low in confidence now. The ironic thing is that he's he's been injured f- for the period that he probably has the best chance of success at Barcelona. Which Coman playing this kind of four two three one, there is much more of a more of a place for him in this Barcelona team. And actually, at the start of last season, while I wouldn't say he was looking like a one hundred and twenty or thirty million pound player, whatever that it was that Barcelona paid for him, he, he was playing pretty well. He he was contributing. Coleman seemed to like him and maybe people were thinking, well, he's going to be a first team player now and then obviously he get he gets injured. So it it just really feels like things have 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 gone against him, shall, shall we say? And it and it's a shame. You know, he he has he has the potential to be one of the best players in Europe. I think he is a player who needs the freedom and obviously the flip side of this is that once Liverpool got rid of him Liverpool really went full Klopp. They went they went peak Klopp and, and they didn't really need a player like Coutinho. You know, there was a lot of talk of who are Liverpool going to replace Coutinho with. Well, they, they didn't replace him and they kind of just went into this 4-3-3 shape with, mm. with Klopp going for a much more kind of energetic, dynamic midfield area um, to support that front three. So that that also that also went against them because a lot of Liverpool fans maybe don't regard him in the way that they should. He was one of their their best players for a time, if not their best player, and it's a shame that he's uh, going to end up on loan with an obligation to buy Everton at some point in the future. That's going to be it, isn't it? It's, that's exact move that's going to happen, Graham. You've, I think you've absolutely nailed it there because it doesn't make sense as we've covered for him to for Kuman to start playing him at Barcelona because he's only got ten games before it costs him twenty million, and that makes no sense. What, what do you think is the ideal for him? Yes, he could. He's he's probably going to get a loan move somewhere. It seems, but like he's linked with he's linked with a move back to Liverpool. I'm not sure that would be best because I don't I don't think they need him right now. But he's linked to Tottenham as well. Graham, mm-hmm. could you see him doing a job there? Maybe. Um. Yes, I think so. I mean, the the problem is with with Nuno. I think he quite likes deep lying central midfielders, and yes, they do have a freedom to burst forward, but maybe not as much freedom as Coutinho likes. I do think the Premier League is a good fit for him. I mean, keep in mind that 
while he was fairly promising for Inter early in his career, it wasn't really until he went to Liverpool that he became this this world class player. So I think the the energy through the middle in in, in Premier League games is is kind of what suits Coutinho. Um, we saw a little bit of it at Bayern Munich. I mean, let's not forget while he wasn't a you know, you wouldn't say he was a key player. He wasn't a pillar of the the team that won the Champions League for Bayern Munich. He he did contribute. I think he played in that that final, didn't he? Um, might even have got an assist in that final. Sounds right. Um, so he he contributed for Bayern Munich, and the, and the Bundesliga and that Bayern Munich team was just a better fit for him than 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 the Barcelona team ever was. So I'm not entirely sure what Premier League team. I mean, it might actually end up being. I know I was joking about it, but. Maybe an Everton is a, is a good fit for him at this point in his career because he's not going to go to, uh, I was going to say a big, big six team, but may, maybe Arsenal would be a reasonable fit for him given that they kind of need a, a number 10. But he's not that Odegaard. desperate, <laughs> he's not. No, of course not. No, nobody is. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the Premier League, the, 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 the answer I'm trying to get to is I think the he needs a return to the Premier League. I'm not entirely sure what team it is, but the Premier League's... the the, the the nature of those of, of that league and those games are mm. I think suit him. Or how about Graham? He goes on loan with Sheriff Tiraspol, takes on <laughs> Inter Milan, Real Madrid, and Shakhtar Donetsk in Group D, and storms into the Champions League group stages. I've looked up Sheriff Tiraspol, by the way. They're from Moldova, not Moldovia, where Doctor Doom is from. Moldova, and their club crest is a sheriff's badge, a five-point sheriff's badge. Awesome, love it. Wow. I mean, yeah, that's definitely where he should go or yeah. he should go to, I actually don't have the groups in front of me, so I'm kind of uh, flying here a little bit, but Barcelona and Bayern Munich, are they in the same group? They I surely think? are, Group A. So whatever the, whatever team is is in that group, he, he should go to into that group and, and show them what they were missing. Yeah, Benfica or Dynamo Kiev was his options there. Benfica, that would be good, wouldn't it? Mm. That kind of seems like a move that might like <laughs> continue to Benfica. Seems I don't know. That seems just kind of right. Like this, the kind of move yeah. that would actually happen. I could see it. I could see it. All right, uh, let's move on from Philippe Coutinho. A couple more to squeeze in on this episode, Graham. Uh, Garen Green has asked us. This is a curious question. What would happen if FIFA changed the throwing rule to allow any types of throws? For example, American football throws, basketball throws, underhand rolling the ball onto the field, etc. What would be the most used? Would throw-ins become a bigger or smaller part of the game? And would there be throw-in specialists? I'd answer that last bit. Isn't Don't Liverpool already have a throw-in specialist? I'm sure they... Didn't they hire yeah. a coach for that? For yeah, and, and, uh, and Danny Murphy gets really, really angry about it every time for some reason. <laughs> so I would say... I This one tickled my fancy because... The throw-in, I think we mentioned before, or you mentioned before we recorded, Graham, that it's kind of a curious thing in the world of soccer. Uh, there are coaches out there who say that, you know, a throw-in, I can't remember who the specific coach is, but like he doesn't like them because it gives you a man disadvantage. When you're taking a throw-in, mm -hmm. you've got 10, uh, 10 teammates on the field and your opponents have an extra man. So there are dis dis there's not, you know, there are downsides to them. But I was thinking, if we change that rule, Graham, what if... We could do the Peter Schmeichel style goalkeeper throw, the, the one arm throw that can go <laughs> 60 yards. My, my logic here being it means that a throw in from basically anywhere on the field becomes dangerous. A throw in from anywhere can make it into the final attacking third. You could launch the ball into the opponent's penalty area from your own half in theory. I think I'd like to see it. What do you think? I mean that that is a true hail mary, and I feel like right. you know Schmeichel 
it would be entertaining, certainly. You know, Smeichel might be, might have been better at it than most, but I still feel like he maybe doesn't have a like a great level of control over where that that ball's going. It's just going far. So I feel like I I don't know how many kind of opportunities would actually come from those kind of throws, other than just maybe creating chaos. I I, I would be in favour if we were allowed to do those. Um, Remember there was an, an Iranian player, at, I think it was the last World Cup, who did like a roly-poly yeah, throw-in. Yeah, the flip. Yeah, yeah, the flip throw-in. Or yeah, like a true flip throw-in, like an actual, like if you if players could do those, like they do a, a forward flip as they're throwing the ball, that would be, I'd be yeah. in favour of that. But you're absolutely right. We, we, were, we were speaking about it before we started recording. I personally feel like throw-ins are almost an afterthought in football. It's, it, it's peculiar to me that outfield players, to get the ball back into play, have to use their hands to throw the ball back in um, mm. when that's not something they have to do in any other aspect of the game and it's it's raised every so often that kick-ins would, would maybe might be introduced and I actually feel like that seems like a much more natural part of football than throwing in with your hands and you, you might end up getting, I mean obviously it would depend on the rules whether whether you there was a certain distance, you know, maybe, if you, maybe you're only allowed to, I don't know how you would enforce this but if you're only allowed to um, pass the ball ten yards or something, then you know maybe it wouldn't change football that much. But if if there was, if essentially it became almost like a like a free kick, you know, if you were allowed to actually get the get the ball in the mixer from a throw in, then all yeah. of a sudden, you know, much much more interesting, much more many many more kind of opportunities. Um, that would that would actually change football quite a bit. But I I don't know if it would change it in a bad way. I think it would maybe make it more interesting. So, yeah, I I I think throw ins are really weird i wouldn't i wouldn't miss them that much i have to say <laughs> i i kind of agree with that and one of the rick leagues i play in graham has a it's not overhead height rules or anything but there's no throw-ins it is kicking the ball back into touch uh, i don't know why that rule is there but it is curious i suppose the downside of that would be any throw on throw in you get near the opponent's penalty box becomes a corner if you kick yeah. it back in i guess it? maybe i guess maybe you could do it like you could almost do it like a rugby style you have to pass it backwards would maybe be the way to do it. So you're not actually allowed to put it forwards into the box. So That's could, another type could... of throw, by the way, Graham. The line-out throw we could we could uh, introduce. Yeah. yeah, that would be entertaining as well. I'm in favour <laughs> of all the weird novelty throw-ins. Uh, and if we're not allowed those, just have kick-ins. Yeah. I think there, there are some useless throws, though. Basketball surely like a three-point shot or whatever. Nah. What's the point of that? That's basically the same as a throw-on. And rolling the ball in... I don't think that would work, but there's, there's a few kind of throws where I yeah. could see uh, I could see um, them doing this. But it does feel like that one area of the game. I think you're completely right, game. That maybe in a couple decades' time looks different because it is a bit of an anomaly picking up the ball to bring it back in. I think you're quite right there. Maybe maybe Garen Green is onto something here. That that's that's part of the game that maybe we see change possibly by the time that Qatar hosts their second World Cup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, gen- genuinely, I do think it, it would be one of the areas of the game I wouldn't, I wouldn't really be that unhappy to change. And 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 there are a lot of like, there's. I, I'm not really in favour of of changing much, but yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It would be. It could be one of the things that's evolved out. Build it into Scotland's 100 year plan. I say, become the masters of the of the uh, launch throw on from from your own <laughs> half. That's what I say, Graham. That's how to dominate this game. Start 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 getting that one in. My suggestion for you there. Thank you, Graham, for that question. One more question to get through today, Graham, and it's from Zach Lippert. Is FIFA the video game 
a positive for kids to play. On the one hand, says Zach, it helps kids get into the sport and understand some of the roles. On the other, it's not a very accurate facsimile of the game and some traits appear under or overvalued. Graham, I'm gonna mostly lean on you for this question because the last FIFA game I played or indeed owned was FIFA 97 colon Road to World Cup uh, on the <laughs> PlayStation 1, which preceded the aforementioned World Cup 98, which was my basically my big introduction to major tournament soccer. It was the first one I watched all the way through. And that's where I pretty much parted ways with the FIFA game series, uh, much to my uh, discredit, I would say, Graham. What are your thoughts on this one? So I played FIFA a lot right up until I was maybe about 21, 22. Um, and then I just felt like all the games were the same every year and they were just milking me for cash for a game <laughs> that essentially had the same things, but just different kits and, and, and different players. And yet you but, buy uh, different kits every year and fill your wardrobe with them. Yeah, don't don't pick apart my logic, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm a complicated person. I'll be <laughs> Yeah, so I, I actually do think FIFA has a, a pretty important part to play in, in in the sports appeal in, in in 2021 and in recent years i think it's a such a, a gateway drug into football for so many for so many children i was looking in my research i was trying to find some studies because i was positive that kids get into football through through playing fifa and, right. and i found a report released in 2016 that said over a third of people who have bought fifa became soccer fans after playing the game and and fifty percent became more interested in the sport since playing it. So I th I think that's pretty conclusive that the, the the positive maybe not for you know I know the question is what's the positive for the kids and I will come on to that but it definitely has a positive for the for the sport in general. And I think FIFA's influence maybe maybe I'm speaking out of turn here but I think the influence is particularly strong in the United States where there isn't the kind of historical roots I, you, you'll know what i'm talking about ryan here in, in europe because there is that history kids kind of get inducted into fandom through their families you know it gets passed down and and while there is there will be that to a certain extent in in, in the states it's maybe not quite as as prevalent so there needs to be an entry portal somewhere for mm -hmm. young fans and i think fifa is a, a good entry entry portal and um, it's absolutely right that it's not a great reflection of the game um, I was always better with Kevin Davis for uh, for Bolton than I was with Messi, and that kind of tells you a lot about the skills that translate well into into games like FIFA and skills that maybe don't translate that that well. But I do think it is good for an entry level football ed education, things like positions and players and clubs and who they play for and competitions and that sort of thing. But if you want a genuine education on things in, in football like tactics and training and recruitment and stuff like that maybe more in-depth things football manager is yeah. the game that you should be playing and i'm not exaggerating football manager is where i learned a lot about football as a teenager maybe as a slightly older teenager but that really ramped up my my knowledge in football i still play football manager to this day because it, it actually does feel like a challenge i feel like i learn things not just about players but in terms of training you have to do the training schedules now in football manager and i, mm -hmm. I always kind of learn things there so I think there's a there's a a progression from FIFA to Football Manager. The, some of they're good. The different games are good at different things. But yeah, I think I think FIFA is is generally a net positive for for kids to play if they want to get into football. I would agree with that, and I will emphasize your point on Football Manager, Graham. I've spoken to a lot of talent scouts or interviewed them over the years, and I can't remember a single one who didn't credit Football Manager with at least um, being yep. a catalyst for their career 
if not like completely responsible for it because and there are many clubs who still use the football manager database to to, to uh, find their way around uh scouting players as well so it, it is a really really handy tool and uh, on zach's question it's, it's the part about the traits that are over or undervalued i don't have much insight on apart from the fact that on fifa 97 i seem to remember if you slide tackled the goalkeeper at just the right moment you could take the ball off of him while he was taking a goal kick um but if you did it at the wrong point red card so it was, it was a bit <laughs> a, a big gamble uh but it is I I don't see the negatives really from from my perspective. I see it the same way as you. It is a massive positive, particularly in the US where it's helping to grow the sport. And you look at the amount of um, NFL players who love playing FIFA. They play, they talk about it in the locker room. They play they play FIFA over Madden, and it's got that crossover appeal in the US, and it really helps to grow the sport. Yeah. And I'd say that I know people whose kids uh, can name the Borussia Dortmund eleven. And I think when I was 10, I could not name the Borussia Dortmund 11. And I think it, it really broadens the scope of knowledge outside of maybe one's own domestic league as well and really yeah. increases that knowledge of the game. So I think it is a really good tool. And I, I see it as a, as a big positive for, 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 the, for the kids to play. I suppose maybe one negative, Grant, does it draw attention away from actually sitting down and watching 90 minutes of a game? Would, would the youngs rather play fifa than actually watch it and does that does that lend itself to the arguments of the european super league where they wanted to um you know make games 60 minutes or sell season tickets for the last quarter of an hour does it play into that short attention span argument a little bit i, d I definitely think live sports is, is in competition with with things like fifa not just fifa you know netflix and all all these other things yeah. that you know can 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 draw the attention now i i do think having um, to be blunt, kind of old men like Florentino Perez make suggestions on on how to address that by s saying things like football matches should be shorter so that they can be broadcast on TikTok. Uh, mm. I'm not entirely sure you're grasping the issue there. That that feels like uh, not the solution. I would I would suggest, and I, I'm not entirely sure. I'm I'm not sure what the solution is, and I don't, I actually don't know if there there needs to be a solution because if it is if FIFA is part of the football world and part of football culture, then you know how how much does it? I mean, I guess you could say if it doesn't translate into gate receipts or into TV contracts or things like that, but I don't know is. Is that such a bad thing? If if the if the clubs are still around and football's still happening and people are still watching, I, I'm not all that concerned if football actually has to kind of contract slightly. I mean, you see a lot of the money that that goes around if that's going into video games and things like esports as well. We should probably mention esports as yeah. a as a booming industry. Then it's just that's just evolution. That's just how things change. You know, things go into different parts of of the sport and different parts of the industry. And as long as there's interest in football, I'm I'm not really that bothered. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Although I do, I do question how in twenty years, if the kids today or the kids in twenty years' time will sit down and watch ninety minutes straight. Like I think of my attention span. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm second screening while I'm watching ninety minutes very frequently. Apart, the only time I don't is when I'm watching a game live. I probably, to be honest, and I think about other parts. You mentioned like Netflix and other. There's so much more competing for our attention. I used to work yeah. for a, a major magazine, Graham. And I remember sitting down with one of the editors and they were saying, like, times are changing. When you got home from work or school back in the day, you'd sit and read a magazine and flick through it. Now, 
there's streaming, there's everything competing for your attention. And that's, that's um, I think about, I used to read a lot of books. I think I've read one book in the last two years yes. because there's so much more going on, isn't there? And that's yeah. going to build more into our lives as well. I'm not saying that we shouldn't watch 90 minute games anymore, but there is a lot more going on in people's lives. And we're going to reach a point mm-hmm. where, where soccer suffers in some way, perhaps. Yeah, when, when I think of you working at a magazine, by the way, I, th- I think of Bart opening the door to the Mad Magazine. Uh, <laughs> and that's where you worked, <laughs> is the Mad Magazine. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think there will there is going to there is going to be a moment of reckoning for, for football, for soccer. But I, I, I think I look at something like F1 as an example of, for anyone who doesn't know, there's a series on Netflix called Drive to Survive on, on F1. Um and the storytelling in that is brilliant. It, it, it creates those stories around the drivers. And I was reading that, this seems like a conveniently round number, but um, I was reading that F1's social engagement since that series came out is up 99%. 99%. Quite incredible. And I, it feels to me like more people are watching F1. My Twitter feed when F1's on, I've always been a bit of an F1 fan, but it seems like more people are talking about it. And I, I think that's directly linked to how that sport is now being packaged. And F1 is a two to three hours, well, two hour race, three hours if you include the kind of formation lap and, and you've got all the practices. And, you know, that is a mu- much more of a slog than a 90 minute football match. And yet they're bucking the trend. And I think it's just because of the way they're telling the stories. So... I agree that football needs to do something different, but I, I'm not sure if it's in changing the 90-minute format. I think it might yeah. be in things around that. Put your heads together, content providers and storytellers. That's what Total Soccer Show says. Anyway, Graham, I think we've reached the end of this Listener Questions episode. I hope we have uh, done good service to these questions, Graham. It has been a pleasure chatting with you once again. Do you feel good about what we did today? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I think any minute now the Champions League draw will move into its uh, into its final hour. Uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> M- Malmo are uh, due to be drawn out any time before midnight, so uh, we-, we might finish up before then. Yeah, I think we're in the interpretive dance section, the two-hour interpretive dance <laughs> before the last round is done. So uh, we like we'll, we'll get back to that. But Graham, thank you very much, listener. Thank you very much. We'll be back soon. Bye.